If you have your Bible, please turn with me to James chapter 4. We're going to continue our study through the book of James. And if you've been coming this semester, you'll know James is pretty hard to deal with. uh, Because he meets us face to face with what it means to be a Christian. And if we have faith and we have been redeemed, as we've just sang, then James says that there are things that will be true of us. And we are going to continue to learn about those things as we look at James chapter 4 this evening. If you know me uh, well, you know that I'm not a mechanic. Uh, I'm not a handyman. I've never claimed to be a handyman. If we have a problem with our car, uh, I can tell you what I think the problem might be, but it would only be a guess. And so I have to take our car, if it's making noises of some kind, to someone who knows something about cars. And when I take, take it into the shop to get fixed, I want to go to an ASC certified mechanic. If you've taken your car to get the oil changed or get something fixed, you might have seen the mechanic has these, this patch that says A, it's, it's a blue and white, and it says ASC certification. They're certified. It, the ASC certification, that's the National Institute of Automotive Service Excellence. And it was created for people like me many years ago that know nothing about cars to help us distinguish between incompetent and competent mechanics. So when I take my car to an ASC certified mechanic, they open up the hood of the car and they put their finger on the problem and say, this is what your problem is with your car. James is kind of like an ASC certified mechanic, isn't he? In that... Week after week, he has been opening up the hood of our lives and he has been putting his finger right on the problem. And here's the thing, because he's a writer of Holy Scripture, he's never wrong. He always gives the right diagnosis. And tonight, once again, James opens up the hood of our lives and he is going to say, you know what your problem is? The problem is your heart. Follow along with me as I read James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your desire, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we have another difficult passage, another passage that gets right in our face uh, from the book of James. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would get in our face, that you would confront us once again with uh, the conflict in our lives and how we handle conflict and how we relate to other people. Would you teach us uh, and convict us, but also show us the good news of the gospel? Because that's what we desperately need, and that's what's going to change us, is when we see how great a Savior we have. So would you be with us tonight through your Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. No one can avoid relationships. I mean, that's kind of who we are, right, as human beings. As human beings, we are always relating to someone. You're always relating to a roommate. You're relating to one of your professors. You're relating to a friend or someone that you're dating. You're relating to a family member, a sibling, a parent. Why? Well, simply put, God is relational. That's who he is in his essence, The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in community with one another. He's a relational being. We are created in his image, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Therefore, we too are relational beings. It's part of who we are at the core. It's part of our DNA, if you will. However, we get to Genesis chapter 3. And we know that sin enters the world. And from that point on relationships are marred with sin and brokenness and pain and they are often filled with conflict, aren't they? I don't have to tell you that that is true. You see, every one of us experience moments of extreme irritation towards people that we love. All of us have things that drive us absolutely crazy about our roommates on a daily basis. You see, conflict is all around us, isn't it? From petty arguments to all-out war, no one is immune to conflict. You've all heard the saying, why can't we just get along? Well, that's what James answers this question in James chapter 4 tonight. He answers the question of why can't we just get along? Look at verse 1. James sets the conflict or sets the context for the entire chapter of James chapter 4 right off the bat in verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's what we're going to look at this evening. We're going to look at three things 
concerning conflicts. If you have an outline, follow along with me. We're going to look at three things. What is the problem with conflict? What is the purpose of conflict? And then thirdly and finally, what is the solution of conflict? What's the problem? Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. So he's talking about desires. He's talking about passions. And then in chapter, and then in verse 4, it's like he switches the subject, isn't it? He says, you adulterous people, exclamation point. And it seems that he is changing the subject, but he's not. You see, James is talking about spiritual adultery. If adultery is the sin of giving the love that I've promised another, or that I've promised to someone else, then spiritual adultery is when I give the love that belongs to God, my heart, to someone or to something else other than him. You see, what James is saying here is that conflict, that relational struggles, is rooted in spiritual adultery. My problem is not you. My problem is not other people. My problem is not situations or someone else. And my own spiritual adultery, James says, causes me to be angry with you. Let's continue to work that out. Look at verse 4. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's reiterating it. He's saying all of this down here, all the horizontal relationships that we have with others and the conflicts that we have with others is rooted in a vertical conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. Think about it this way. If my heart starts to be ruled by a certain desire, meaning a certain desire has come in, an idol, and taken over my heart and is now ruling and reigning in my heart. There's only two ways that I can respond to you. If you're feeding my idol and helping me get what I want, guess what? We're cool. I'm happy with you. We're friends. But if you become an obstacle that gets in the way of me getting what I want, guess what? I don't like you very much. I'm going to be discouraged when I'm with you. I'm going to be angry with you. And there will even be times when I wish you weren't in my life. You see, my problem is not you. My problem is not the situation that we're in together. My problem is that a legitimate desire has overtaken my heart and is now in control. And the Bible says that my heart belongs to Jesus and to him alone. He is the one that is to control me as a Christian. Now, you might be saying, well, so is, J is James saying that all desires are wrong? No, he's not saying that. A desire might be right in and of itself, but it is never okay for a desire or an idol to rule our hearts. For example, you've had a long week. You've had a long semester so far. 
And so it is perfectly fine to desire relaxation this weekend and next week on spring break. However, it is not okay for you to be ruled by relaxation in such a way that when your parents or your siblings or your friends or someone at home, when they get in the way of that relaxation, then you get angry and frustrated when they get in the way of that desire. Let me share an example from my own life, a humbling example. Ironically, when I was preparing for this very sermon, it was a Saturday morning, and I'd had a long week, and I wanted nothing more than to have a relaxing Saturday morning. Here's what I wanted. I wanted to get up early. I wanted to get my cup of coffee, O. Henry's, in my favorite mug, to sit in my favorite chair at nine, and I was going to do some reading for this sermon, and I was going to, at nine o'clock, flip on college game day, watch football all day, that evening cook hamburgers on the big green egg, and live happily ever after. I was quite certain that God had promised me this. I was quite certain that it was in the Bible somewhere. The morning started pretty good. I get my cup of coffee. I sit in my favorite chair. I open up my book to read about this passage. And I get about three sentences in. And here around the corner, guess who comes around the corner? Yes, Kate, Elizabeth, and Ann Wright, my three girls. And out of all the rooms in the house, they decide to play Barbie dolls right next to me. <laughs> right next to my chair. I'm cool with that, actually. I'm okay. They're being quiet. And then all of a sudden, they start taking it up a notch. And as little girls tend to do, they start screaming and getting louder and louder. And guess who gets really frustrated? Me. Why am I getting frustrated? Because I want my kingdom. And my three girls are getting in the way of me getting my kingdom. You see, a legitimate desire for comfort. That's okay. But it had started to rule me. And they were getting in the way of it. And I was ticked off. And so all of a sudden, Kate pushes me right on over the edge. I don't even remember what she did at this point. But I just know she did something, and I snap, and I lash out at her, and I was harsh with her. And Kate's my tough one. If you've been around Kate, some of you have. She's my tomboy. She's tough. She's rough. And she just melts right there in front of me. And she starts crying, and she runs back to her room, slams the door, and I can hear her crying through the walls of our house. And by God's grace, and I mean by God's grace, I was convicted. And I marched straight back to Kate's room, and I opened up the door, and there's Kate sitting on her bed crying. And I walk up, and I sit down beside her, and I say, Kate, your daddy really needs Jesus. Would you please forgive me for being so selfish with you? 
You know, she, of course, forgave me. But you see, my frustration was not caused by Kate. It was not caused by the girls being in the room while I was trying to relax. My frustration was caused by a completely legitimate desire that started to control me and wrongly rule me. And here's my question. What about you? What desire in your life right now, at this very moment, sitting in Reed Chapel, is wrongly ruling you in an unhealthy way? What has become all important, even more important than your relationships themselves? It could be your desire for comfort, your desire for pleasure. Maybe it's the goal to look good or to maintain a certain image. Maybe it's your schedule. Are you a control freak with your schedule so that if anybody messes it up or comes in and alters it, then you get frustrated and discouraged and angry with them? Maybe it's a desire to have certainty about your future. You see, beneath all of this out here, beneath all our relationships... There is a war raging for our hearts. And James says that when we make something other than God number one in our lives, then we have become too friendly with the world and we have become spiritual adulterers. So here's my question. Who will rule your relationship with your friends? Your desire to be cool and popular? Or your desire for God's glory? Who will rule your relationship with the person you're dating? Your desire for pleasure? Or God's glory? Who will rule your relationship with your father? Your desire for vengeance for years of mistreatment? Or God's glory? What is the problem with relationships? What's our own heart? We are spiritual adulterers. It's our own idolatry. Secondly, what is the purpose? James says that we, this is unbelievable. Follow along with me here. Verse 5, we are spiritual adulterers, but we have a jealous and a loving husband who fights for his bride. Is that not the best news in the world? Look at verse 5. Don't you know that the spirit who lives inside you envies intensely? Now, this is a little hard to decipher, so let me break it down for you. Here's what James is saying. This is what God does when we stray and run after false idols and false lovers. God is moved when that happens in your heart. When something else is ruling your heart, the spirit envies. It becomes jealous and concerned and will do whatever it takes to win back the affections of your hearts. And we've got to understand this jealousy is not a bad thing. That's the way we often think of jealousy. This is a good jealousy. It is our only hope. Because here's what it means. It means that we aren't fighting by ourselves. 
And I don't know about you, but that's the best news in the world for someone like me whose heart is always straying in wanting to run from Jesus. And often I feel like I've got a, an allergic reaction to God. But God chases us down and pursues us and will never stop fighting for us until he has gotten complete victory in our hearts. Friends, that is very good news. And the question I have is, how does he typically regain our affections? How do you think God does that? Well, he does that through people. He regains our affections through relationships, through parents, and through classmates, and through roommates, and through those on our halls, and through our siblings. That is one of the blessings of relationships. Think about it. Our relationships, particularly conflict, allows us to see what we typically live for besides God. Think about that, time, that moment on Saturday when the girls were in the room with me. God in his goodness. They could have played anywhere. But God in his providence brought them into the room with me that morning and put them right next to me. Why? So he could show me how selfish I still am. So that he could show me how much I desperately need him moment by moment, day after day. And I want to say tonight that that is true of all of your relationships. Especially your relationships within your own family. With your siblings and with your close friends. Think about it. In your family, you can't hide your critical spirit. They know you. In your family, you can't hide your moodiness and your selfishness and your impatience. Tim Keller has this incredible quote, and he's talking about marriage, but I think we can relate it to family relationships. Here's what he says. In our family relationships, God takes our own selfishness and uses it against us for our own good. God takes our own selfishness in our relationships and uses it against us for our own good. Here's what he means. God is using your relationships right now, think about them, to bubble up your sin so that you will deal with it and run to Jesus in desperation. The very thing that drives you nuts about your roommate, the very thing that drives you nuts about your parents, and your sisters, and your brothers, and your friends, is the very thing that Jesus is using to make you more like him, to change you. You see, the gospel comes and it changes our relationships. The gospel changes our relationships because it causes us to be more concerned with what God is doing in our own hearts rather than being concerned with what he is doing in the other person. So oftentimes when we see our selfishness in our family members, we're like, man, who are they? They are so stinking selfish. The gospel comes and says, instead of looking at their selfishness, 
Why don't you let them be a mirror that reflects back on your own heart and shows you who you really are and how selfish your heart is and how little you really love people? You see, Elizabeth Elliot, she tells a story about a time she was in North Wales and she watched a shepherd with his sheep. And she said it was the hardest thing in the world to watch. She would ta- the shepherd would take these sheep and dip the sheep down into pool, at a pool of disinfectant in order to kill the parasites and the, the bugs and the diseases. And she says the shepherd time after time would keep dipping these sheep down into the pool of disinfectant over and over. And she said the, the sheep would just struggle and were, you know, bleeding and just struggling. And she said, just when you thought it was over, boom, the shepherd would take them down one more time. And she comments on this scene with this. She says, you know, it's, the very, it's actually saving the sheep's life. It's the very best thing that can be done for the sheep. And then she says this. I wonder what it feels like to think that your shepherd is trying to kill you. Some of you tonight are in the middle of hard relationships. I don't know who it's with. A hard relationship with your family or friends or maybe a professor or your sibling and it feels like the shepherd, the good shepherd, is trying to kill you. But rather than thinking that God is trying to kill you, is it not possible that God in all of his wisdom, in all of his power, in all of his glory, in his sovereignty and control over all things, is using a difficult relationship to teach you and to show you things that you need to have in order to grow and mature in the faith? Who is God using right now like that in your life? And do you see his goodness in it? Do you see that he is working those things out and placing that person in your life so that you can grow and so that you can change and become more like him? The purpose, here's the point, the purpose of our relationships we often think is about our happiness. No, that's not the gospel. It is far beyond that so much greater, so much more glorious than our personal happiness. You see, relationships are one of the primary ways that God uses for us to grow and to mature and be made more like him. Will you allow your relationships to be a place where amazing growth takes place? Thirdly, what's the solution? Look at verses 6 through 10. This is interesting to me. Because you would think we've got conflict in our relationships. Let's go to the person and let's work it out. That's not what James says. He says the first solution is to humble ourselves before God. Why does James say that? Well, we must first deal with the idolatry of our hearts. Why? Well, remember my first point. Because if 
human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery, is rooted in the vertical, then we have to go to God first and humbly repent for the things that have replaced him in our lives. How do we do this? Look at verses 6 through 10. We must understand grace. Look at verse 6. He gives more grace. Think about that. I mean, we just let that just go in one ear and out the other. Just, He gives more grace. We are spiritual adulterers. Here's the picture. We have left Jesus and, father, and, and followed other lovers, but he gives more grace. Is that not the good news of the gospel? Our hearts are restless. Our hearts are always running. And Jesus gives more grace. What's the response to that grace? Is the response go and do whatever we want and go crazy and say, I know Jesus will forgive me? Absolutely not. Paul says that it is the kindness of God in Romans 2 that leads us to repentance. That is exactly what James says. He agrees. Because God gives more grace, follow along the passage, you'll see it. He gives more grace, therefore, humbly repent. That is what leads us to repentance. Look at verse 8. Because he gives more grace... Draw near, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Here's what he's saying. Because God gives more grace, come clean about who you really are. Come clean about what your heart is really like. Wash your hands. Admit that you have been cheating on God with the world. Come clean about how you really treat other people. Come clean about how you treat your parents and your siblings and your friends. Come clean about the fact that there are divisions between you and other people. Look at verse 9. Grieve, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. What's he saying here? Quit laughing about your sin. That's what he's saying. Take your sin seriously. Because when you take your sin lightly and brush it off, that is a mark of someone who has made friends with the world. Here's what he's saying. Quit minimizing your sin. Quit blaming everyone else for your sin. Stop noticing the speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye, in your friend's eye, while you ignore the plank or the beam in your own. Last spring, there was a middle school principal in Wisconsin. He made national news because he posted an F list outside his office for all the school to see. And he had the names with the grade with an F next to it, and all of those students weren't allowed to go to the upcoming 
middle school dance. And as I thought about that story, I thought about how often that is the way we view Christianity. All the people that have screwed it up and blown it and messed up big time aren't allowed to go to the upcoming dance. Friends, that's the lie of religion. You see, religion says, straighten up. Be better. Confess your sins so that you can be good like the rest of us. Christianity is the complete opposite. Christianity says you'll never be good enough. Christianity says you'll never clean your act up. But Jesus was good enough for you. Christianity says that in reality, all of our names are posted with an F beside them because we have broken God's law. But Jesus passed the test for us with flying colors. And you know what he does? This is Christianity. He goes and he takes that F list, and if you're a Christian, your name's on it, and he rips it up to shreds, and he throws it as far as the east is from the west. And I want to suggest tonight that that is the key for living out your faith in your relationships. When that begins to melt your heart, your relationships will start to change. And it will melt your heart when you grasp this and when you get this at a deep heart level that we were spiritual adulterers running the complete other way from Jesus. And then look at verse 8. What does that say? We're spiritual adulterers. We are ruined, but God draws near. God draws near to ruined, broken sinners like you and me. When we grasp that message, guess what? We will humbly repent and our relationships will begin to change. Let's pray. Father, help us to be honest about our relationships tonight and where we are. And may we deal with those in a gospel